This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and back to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapter 9 is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dennis is a longtime student of the book of Hebrews, as you've been hearing on these episodes, and an active pastor and author of commentaries on the books of Acts and the Revelation. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 9, an obviously rich deep chapter. We have our work cut out for us to try to get through this chapter in one episode, but I think we can do it. So we'll start in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it all, with a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Well, it seems like there's some detail here already. So evidently, there were more things that he thought he could have said. But he begins to give us a sort of geography of the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies. What's this all about, Dr. Johnson? Well, he's listing these various elements of the furniture in the two chambers of the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place. In part, I think, because he uh, wants to emphasize the great care and concern that God took to regulate and to uh, direct this place, which would be the meeting place of himself with his people. He also emphasizes the gold a great deal that was overlaid on various parts, just to emphasize the beauty and the splendor of being in the presence of God. And then, as you noticed at the very end, he says, we're not going to go into these things in detail. That's perhaps in contrast to other treatments of the tabernacle by contemporary Jewish authors who would go into great detail on the symbolism. It's worth doing. But the writer to the Hebrews wants to emphasize that this earthly sanctuary, its beauty is nothing to be compared with the heavenly reality that it copies, of which it is a replica, and the heavenly reality in which Jesus, our high priest, is now interceding for us. So he lays out the beauty in just a tad of detail and then says, no, we're not really going to go there. We're going to go to something far better. You said he lays out the beauty. That's interesting. Give us a sense of what it would have meant for a Jewish Christian believer in the first century to think about these things. They probably meant something in that setting that they don't mean to us. It's been a long time since any of us have related to God on the basis of these kinds of things or with these sorts of implements involved in our relationship to God. Well, that's true. And of course, part of what the author is going to lead us to here is that all of the 
regulations pertaining to the tabernacle, all of the, again, the beauty of not only the gold-plated furniture, but the tapestries and so on, were also accompanied by this theme of the unapproachable holiness of God, the splendor of God, which evoked awe. And normal Jewish worshiper would not have ever witnessed personally either of these two sanctuaries. Only the priests could go into the first chamber of the tabernacle. And as he's going to go on to say, only the high priest, only once a year, could enter into that most holy place. So what they knew of it, they knew of it from hearing the scripture read. And it emphasized this awesome holiness of God, his utter purity, that sinful people cannot approach with impunity unless there is an atonement that is made to deal with the guilt of our sin. And all All that stuff, as beautiful as it was and as impressive as it was, was all inherently intended by God to go away. And so built into it was the temptation to make it permanent. But the intention, the divine intention, is that it was not supposed to be permanent. It was supposed to do something else, to point somewhere else. And the writer to the Hebrews then is saying, as magnificent as all this stuff is, and it's important to appreciate the magnificence, it's done because... Something even more magnificent has already come, which, when it came, no one appreciated, relatively no one. That's true. That's true. And this is a place in which it's wise for us to remember the flow of this sermon epistle at this point, that when he's speaking here of that first covenant, the covenant made by God with Israel at Sinai through Moses, he's really of course, immediately building on what he has just said in chapter 8 about the promise of a new covenant, a promise that had testified that the old covenant was ready to pass away. And so he's going on to talk about now the sanctuary associated with the old covenant as something that was only intended to be temporary. And the verses that we'll talk about in just a few minutes, he's going to make that even more explicit. Let's go there now. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. You would comment on that. That is a difficult passage. The first thing we need to recognize is that the by this that he refers to in verse 8 specifically focuses on what I alluded to earlier in verse 7, that only the high priest could go into the most holy place only once a year, not without blood. And he's also referenced the fact that other priests could enter into the first chamber of the tabernacle daily and did for the sake of replacing the showbread offering the burned incense and so on. So he's saying that there's something very restrictive about access to the presence of God. And our version that we're working here, the English Standard Version, is trying to wrestle with the issue that the author to the Hebrews is using tent the Greek word skene, in a couple of different senses. He's talking about the two sections or segments or chambers of the tabernacle. He's also talking about the first tabernacle as a whole. And so here when they say the first section is still standing and the way into the holy place is not revealed as long as that happens, they're really talking about that whole tabernacle in its function, in its standing as 
the place where God meets with his people. He says, as long as the tabernacle in the history of redemption has that function, the real way of access into God's presence has not yet been revealed. But now, he's about to say, but now this new way of access has been revealed, implying then that as the old covenant in general was ready to pass away, so also the function of the earthly sanctuary has been fulfilled and it no longer has its function as the meeting place of God with his people. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It's interesting, too, and we can maybe just talk about this for a moment, the way that the writer to the Hebrews thinks about access to God and proximity to God. The farther one goes into the temple tabernacle and through the chambers, as you said, I like that word, it becomes relatively less accessible, and there's a message there about God, about the nature of God, that it's one thing to be in the outer courts. It's one thing to be outside. It's another thing to go into the holy places, and particularly the holy of holies, that access to that is highly restricted. As you say, he's describing things that the hearers of this text, when it was first read to them, probably in the mid-60s. They would never have seen unless there was a converted, you know, now Christ-confessing high priest or something, which seems somewhat unlikely. So talk about what that means. How should we think about the holiness of God relative to the messages embedded in the tabernacle and the temple, and then what the writer is doing with those? The point that he's making is that to become close to God is a privilege that comes by invitation only. We can't push our way into the presence of God. It's his right and prerogative to determine who comes close to him. And you you notice that he mentioned within and associated with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, he had alluded to that earlier in chapter 5 when he talked about Aaron as the designated high priest. Talk about that imagery, Aaron's rod budding. The issue was Korah, a Levite, along with some fellow rebels, Dathan and Abiram, were insisting that any of them had a right to access into the presence of God. They were abusing that title that God had given to Israel, kingdom of priests, to say any of us can do this. And God had designated Aaron for that. And so in that dispute, God called the representatives representatives of each of the 12 tribes, and Aaron's rod represented the tribe of Levi and his specific family, to place their rods, their walking sticks, dead wood, obviously, because they'd been used for probably years in walking, in the presence of God. And then the next morning, one of those rods had new buds, by which God designated, Aaron is my selected old covenant high priest, and his sons are the ones that are authorized to approach into my very presence in the inner sanctuary. Sometimes one gets the impression that now that we're in the new covenant, everything is different. And well, it may have been the case that under Moses, you couldn't push your way into the Holy of Holies. But now, since we're in the new covenant, well, God isn't that way anymore. And we don't have to rely on his invitation, his discretion. And I think we ought to meditate on that a little bit, particularly in our setting in North America. This is a nation formed by rebels, and historians of American religion have described the sort of egalitarian, lowercase d, democratic spirit of American Christianity, particularly since the Second Great Awakening. And so this is a strange notion for a lot of Christians, perhaps, the notion that we have to wait for God to invite us. Implied in that is that he is a king, right? A holy king who only allows people under very strict circumstances to enter into his presence. I guess the question is, that's pretty clear from the Old Testament. Hebrew seems to be suggesting that's still true. 
Well, it is still true. It is absolutely still true. And, of course, where the writer, the preacher to the Hebrews is going is to say that believers in Jesus do now have access to the presence of God, not because it's our democratic right by any means, but because of the atoning work of Christ and the worthiness of our great high priest. If we assume it's our right, we miss the wonder and the amazement at the grace that is shown to us. If we realize we have no claim, no right, and look only to the fact that God on his side has taken the initiative to use the reality that took place at the crucifixion to tear the veil. Hebrews will refer to that way over in chapter 10, but to rip the veil and open the most holy place for us. He did it. We can't. Which only he could have done, given the account of the way the veil was torn. From top to bottom, exactly. All right, when we come back, we get to one of the more often discussed parts of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 and following. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every command of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of bulls, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Dennis, I want you to explain this to us right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. This is, as you said, Scott, a challenging and rich passage dealing with Jesus' role in relation to the first covenant, that is the old covenant, the covenant made by God with Israel at Sinai through Moses, and the new covenant. And it's a crucial point in the movement of the epistle as a whole. He has said in verse 11 that Christ has become the high priest of good things that have now arrived, good things that were anticipated in the old covenant and in its sanctuary, but now he's brought them about. And now he's talking about Christ offering himself as the sacrifice to atone for the trespasses that had taken place under the first covenant, the law of Moses. Now the controversy comes in verses 16 and 17 when 
most of our English versions suddenly switch from using the covenant word that we typically use in English to reflect the Greek word diatheke, and typically our English versions in verses 16 and 17 think that the author has switched to a very different legal model, that is, last will and testament. The English Standard Version does this, the NIV does this, and others do this as well. The New American Standard is consistent throughout, even though they're not quite sure about how to handle verses 16 and 17. I am quite convinced that we should be thinking covenants straight on through from the transition from verse 15 into 16 and the transition from 17 into 18. He's clearly thinking of a covenant relationship. So then we need to ask the question, how is he connecting death to covenant, if that's what he's talking about in verses 16 and 17? And I'm persuaded that he's connecting death to covenant in that covenant ratification ceremony in which the sanctions, and especially the death sentence that would fall upon a party to the covenant should they fail to keep the covenant, is symbolically represented by sacrificial animals. We can think back again to Genesis 15 when God himself, as the pillar of fire, as it were, passes through the slain animals to secure his promise to Abraham. Or as the writer here is going to point out, echoing from Exodus 24, when the covenant is made at Sinai, the blood of the sacrificial animals is sprinkled on the book of the law. Moses also describes it being sprinkled on the altar and on the people, meaning that it's a two-sided obligation. If either party fails, death is to come. That's really what the author is getting at. And in fact, if we were to translate the Greek with a really woodenness, it would be a covenant is not in force until the death of the covenant maker is brought. It's a very striking term there. It has to be brought in some symbolic way. And then a covenant is made firm over dead things. One not very popular version says dead victims. And that's really a pretty good translation, even though nobody uses it. It's constituted, inaugurated, put into force on the basis of and over these sacrificial animals that symbolize that the covenant maker, the one who brings upon himself the covenant curses, saying, may I not live if I fail to keep my covenant. Let me push back a little bit, not that I disagree, but the listener has been reading and hearing Hebrews in a certain way and has read this passage again and again. And in some translations, it says the death of the testator. And we hear that and we immediately now naturally think of our own experience, right? If you're of a certain age, perhaps a relative has died. There's been a reading of the will. The relative had a will, and so he was the testator. And when the will is read, it's his last will and testament. And Hebrews 9 seems to be, at least as people read it in their English Bibles, to be describing that scene. And you're coming along with this newfangled, radical reinterpretation of Hebrews 9 uh, with bizarre notions, reading it into uh, Hebrews 9 that um, nobody's ever really experienced. So defend yourself, Johnson. How are you not imposing novelties on Hebrews 9? That's pushing back a lot. (laughs) Okay, first of all, it's true. In our experience, the idea of solidifying a covenant relationship by the slaying of animals is absolutely foreign to us. Not foreign to Hebrew Christians in the first century who knew their Bibles well. They knew that very well. Secondly, this newfangled interpretation obviously has the strength of reading the Greek term diatheke in the same sense and as the same sort of legal arrangement straight on through with the preceding verses and the following verses. And 
In particular, it makes sense of the logic between verse 15, where the author has said Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant because a death has taken place for the transgressions under the first. Jesus can solidify our relationship to God under the new covenant because that legacy of guilt and liability to death, which we had accrued by violating that first covenant, he has dealt with. That legacy that was symbolized in the sacrificial animal. And therefore, we receive the benefits of Christ's death because he's dealt with the problems that we brought on ourselves under the old covenant. Is there any example in Scripture of the kind of last will and testament with which we are familiar that would give any warrant for reading Hebrews 9 in that context rather than in the context of Exodus 24 or Genesis 15 or the slaughtering of the animals and the walking between the pieces in Jeremiah? So we can think of at least off the top of our heads three examples of what you're describing. Are there any examples of the last will and testament process in Scripture? Well, the other example that's often pointed to is in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul talks about, again, using the term diatheke, that once that is put into effect, it's put into writing, that others cannot add codicils to that. Some have argued that even that text is more related to covenant making, that only the covenant Lord could make that. But that's, that's a possible parallel. But the likelihood is that the imagery is of covenant making, which again involved the slaying of animals and the taking of oaths, and in some cases the walking between the pieces, saying, May it be to me as it is to these animals if I break this covenant. And that would have been a procedure with which ancient people, including first century Jewish Christians, would have been familiar. Is that fair? I believe so. I believe so. And particularly in the passage that the writer is about to reference that you've already read in Exodus 24, the application of the blood to the people as well as to the book and the altar. And the making of the thing over victims. Right. Which is huge because when, right. when we have a last will and testament, we don't do it over <laughs> over any dead bodies normally. Not literally. And not, not literally. Not even. Yeah. Right. And we don't swear oaths and we don't go through all that process, at least relative to last wills and testaments. But just to help the listener think about modern parallels for this business of covenant making and oaths and sanctions and think about modern parallels, there are such things in contemporary life. And we do them all the time. There's no blood involved, but we do swear oaths with sanctions. Now, I think you have bought a house before, have you not, Dr. Johnson? I have, with fear and trembling. (laughs) And when you sat in the office with the reams and reams of paper, signing your name over and over again to documents that you likely hadn't read in detail, at the end of it all, you swore an oath. May it be to me, may bad things happen to me, if I do not keep the oath I have sworn here in this office office before this notary public, and namely to make the mortgage payment to the bank. And the sanction attached to that covenant is repossession of the house, right? Exactly. And so if you buy a car that way or buy a house or enter into agreements, we have covenants, codes, and restrictions in our neighborhoods sometimes where we've entered in by virtue of buying the house, we've entered into agreements that we won't paint our house a garish color and thereby lower the property values of our neighbor's houses. So in fact, even though we're less familiar with 
with this idea of making covenants, and surely we don't do it anymore by, you know, killing animals and sprinkling blood. The process still exists. We have a thing in our courts called perjury. If you swear to tell the truth in a court case and you're found to have lied, you can be convicted of perjury and be punished for that. And so that's a covenant with oaths and sanctions. So it's not as unfamiliar as we might think. That's exactly right. We could even go on to talk about those who take oaths of loyalty to the country in military service or in political leadership. And there the stakes are even higher if they fail to keep their commitments. Yeah, we call that treason. Right. In some cases anyway, you can be shot for that. So there's an oath that is frequently signed in blood, not necessarily for treason, but people swear oaths and they go into military service and sometimes they lose their lives. So we get a sense of what's happening there in the middle of the chapter the difficult section that's been so discussed, we're down to verse 20, saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Can you comment on that just a little? Well, he's now talking about, obviously, the setting apart of the tabernacle as the place of worship in the Old Covenant, and talks about the application of blood to these various inanimate objects, the tent with its various skins and tapestries, uh, the various implements of furniture that we've heard at the beginning of the chapter. All of that has to be cleansed with blood. And then And then he moves in this very interesting way to say, this is necessary because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So he's emphasizing the close identification of the tabernacle or the sanctuary with the people who need forgiveness. And I think that helps us to understand when he's going to go on in these next couple of verses to talk about better blood that cleanses heavenly realities. Do we want to go there? Sure, because all this is leading up to the end of the chapter where he begins talking about things that are quite remarkable, beginning at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We hear those verses and we immediately think, how is it that anything in heaven could need to be cleansed. I mean, this is the realm of God's absolute holiness and purity. Certainly, it's understandable that the earthly sanctuary needs to be consecrated because of its association with not just the physical creation, but with sinful human beings. It needs to be consecrated with bloodshed to remove any taint of human contact. But now the author says the heavenly things themselves. And I think what he's getting at is that not that there's any impurity in heaven, but again, that the heavenly sanctuary is so closely identified with us, the worshipers who are now being brought into heaven through the work of Christ, that Christ's death is the one necessary sacrifice that cleanses us to be not only the worshipers, but in a certain sense to be the sanctuary. Back in chapter 3, he talked about our being God's house. And of course, other places in the New Testament speak of us as the new and spiritual temple, First Peter 2. I think he may be even going almost there to say that we are this new sanctuary, while also saying we are entering into heaven by faith because Jesus has entered there on our behalf. And it's the true 
thing in verse 24, which is a remarkable thing to say, because our tendency is to think, well, what we see, what we can taste and touch and feel and experience with our senses, that's the real stuff. And he's not saying, by the way, that the stuff we experience with our senses isn't real in some sense, but the true thing is in heaven. Help us understand the thinking of the writer to the Hebrews and how we should begin to adjust our thinking to accommodate the teaching of Scripture here. He began to make this point to us back in chapter 8 when he referenced that statement in the Pentateuch that Moses was to give instructions to build the tabernacle according to the pattern, the template that was shown him on the mountain. And so he's just pulling that forward now to this point and saying the earthly sanctuary is a copy. It's not the original. It's not the real thing. It has, obviously, real physical reality, but the original sanctuary of God in which our high priest now intercedes for us and presents his finished sacrifice as the basis for our forgiveness is heaven itself. And that's the reality. And that does cause us then to think more often about how our natural instinct is to attach the most important reality to the stuff we can see and touch and to devalue or to ignore these amazing unseen spiritual realities which are far more significant in our relationship to God, that we really are called to live by faith and not by sight. Historically, we have struggled as Christians, particularly in the early years of the church, but even in our time, we see it all the time. We've struggled with the notion that on the one hand, to overvalue the material that we can see, touch, taste. And on the other hand, we've faced the Gnostic challenge to say that what we see, touch, taste, experience with our senses isn't real at all. And so Hebrews isn't interested in that at all, and neither are we. We don't want the listener to be confused, to think that we're suggesting that creation isn't good, and that creation isn't real, and that Jesus' humanity isn't true and real, because that would attack one of the most basic messages of the book of Hebrews, right? That Jesus is like us in every respect, sin accepted, which relies on his true humanity. At the same time, one of the slogans under which we've been working through this sort of audio commentary on Hebrews is that Moses works for Jesus. But now there's a layer added more clearly in chapter 9 that not only is there this sort of forward and backward relation in the history of redemption, but there's an upward relation that's sort of superimposed now on top of all of these things so that everything that happens in redemptive history actually in some sense works for heaven. Well said. Why is that so difficult for us to grasp? I think it's so hard for us to grasp that what takes place on the visible, touchable plane of history, which is real and has significance, is ultimately pointing away from itself. We should see it as pointing away from itself to heaven because we, first of all, are embedded in the sensory world that is all around us. And then I suppose, too, that we still labor under the influence of our surrounding culture, of a naturalistic determinism that is opposed to ground natural science, that nothing really counts that we can't measure, that we can't see or touch or taste. So I think it's partly just that we live in this world and we're constantly called to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God by faith, and that's a challenge for us, and then made more complex for us just in the culture in which we live today.
In the ancient world, there was a great struggle, as I said, to hold on to the humanity of Jesus and the reality of what was created. And to be sure, we've struggled with that. Peter Jones has pointed out for years that we struggle with that in our time again. So it's back. What was old is new again. But one of the great themes of the modern world has been this philosophy is called empiricism. If you can't experience it with your senses, then it doesn't really exist, which means the transcendent world, any sort of transcendent truth, reality is gone. And that's a great temptation. And so that leads us to essentially existentialism and nihilism. Those are big words, which means this life is all there is and there isn't anything, and this life doesn't mean anything. So in a sense, what Hebrews is saying is a great counter to all of that to say, no, what transpires in our historical plane, as you say, has the greatest significance because it has to do ultimately with heaven. So we need both things simultaneously, which is what he goes on to say in verses 25 and 26 and following, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own where then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, he does emphasize, obviously, very strongly here, the watershed event of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He's appeared at the end of the ages, which now Hebrews is talking about, as he did at the very beginning of the book. He says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. So it's the cross of Christ that he's focusing on here as marking, signaling the beginning of the end of the ages. And that blood that Christ shed on earth has such weight and such significance because of who he is, the divine eternal son and the incarnate obedient son, that it cleanses God's people and it prepares heaven to be the venue in which God's people worship. And it needs never to be repeated. Its effectiveness is eternal and infinite for all those for whom Christ died. So unlike the sacrifices, he's going to go on to say this in the next chapter, in the tabernacle that are repeated daily and annually, this doesn't need to be repeated. It's once for all because of the perfection of the one who has offered it himself, that great sacrifice. Now this is, I said, the beginning of the end of the ages because he also is talking here, he talks about Christ appearing a second time at the end of the end of the ages to bring the completion and the consummation of salvation to God's people. So in a certain sense, he's presenting the church's life, our life, between the first and the second comings of Christ as an extended Yom Kippur, an extended day of atonement. Our great high priest has offered the sacrifice. He's entered into the most holy place. We await his return out of the most holy place. And as we're in the wilderness, we're confident that he has brought us into that place by his representative service on our behalf, and so we can worship with confidence there. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.